From the studios of the Private Client Network in Midtown Manhattan, welcome to Luxury on Location. This dynamic podcast features conversations with luxury realtor Kevin Snedden, founder of the Private Client Network at Compass, and his Private Client Network partners. In this, our second episode of Season 2, Kevin will be speaking with Nicholas Brown, our Private Client Network partner in Atlanta. Nicholas is a top broker in the Atlanta luxury market, and here's why. Nicholas has been selling luxury real estate in Atlanta since 2010. During this time, he has consistently ranked as one of the top five sales agents in Atlanta. In fact, Nicholas has sold over $765 million in luxury real estate since 2010, including over $165 million in 2021 alone. Prior to his real estate career, Nicholas worked for leading global corporations, including Ritz-Carlton, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, and Stella Artois. Nicholas has clearly leveraged this experience to excel in the Atlanta luxury real estate arena. What we admire most about Nicholas is his passion, his drive, and his overall professionalism. We are so fortunate to have Nicholas in our private client network, and we are delighted to have him as our featured guest on Luxury on Location. Hello, Nicholas Brown. Welcome to Luxury on Location. Hey, Kevin. How are you? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Excellent. Excellent. Really pleased to have you in the network. Really gotten to know you over the years and very excited for this conversation. I think our listeners will enjoy it as well. So to get started, Nicholas, it'd be great if you could take our listeners through your overall professional background. Yes, the younger years of my career were spent predominantly in luxury marketing. That started in hospitality. So I did my management training in hotel catering and institutional management. That was done in the UK. I was very fortunate during that degree period where I was sent to the United States to do an internship. That internship was split between Chicago and Amelia Island. During that period of time, I was working for the Ritz-Carlton Hotel chain, which is obviously a phenomenal luxury brand. I learned a lot under that brand. And at the same time, I met my future wife. I did return back to the UK to finish my schooling. From there, that took me on into European luxury hospitality management, which also segued into the other brands you mentioned, Stella Artois, BMW, Mercedes. I found myself firmly in the middle of Asia Pacific, living and working outside of Bangkok. I've now moved into just really luxury marketing and not so much with the hospitality aspect entwined with it. And the young lady that I had met previously in the United States reached out to me, at which point I I'll put this nicely. I said, what the heck do you want? Because the prior breakup had not been great. 18 months later, I found myself emigrating to the United States and moving back to Amelia Island. So a bit of a whirlwind tour as to how I got into the United States. Getting into residential real estate, it's an interesting story. One of a really unfortunate circumstance and misfortune. We, I actually happened to be in New York in 2008 for my brother's wedding. And we were staying in a hotel literally around the corner from Lehman Brothers. I was not in residential real estate, and I did not realize what was going on at the time. But the business I was in, I worked with a group of guys, and we did private luxury sales and marketing for second home communities from West Virginia down to Florida. We did a couple of HGTV dream homes. It was a fantastic business that basically disappeared overnight. It was very heavy cash loaded. And so I found myself in the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, gainfully unemployed with what I thought was a very good global resume. 
Turns out that it wasn't good enough because I continued to be gainfully unemployed, meaning that I was now an immigrant four years in the country. I was on social security collecting $330 checks. My father was paying my mortgage and my wife was working two jobs. And as I'm sitting around the house one day, drowning sorrows, my wife said, you should get your real estate license. And I sort of laughed that off saying, I don't know anything about sales. I don't really know anything about real estate. And as time went on, and I realized that no one was responding to my multiple resume applications for jobs throughout the city, that I was left to fend for myself. So I made the decision early 2009 to go get my residential real estate license. Quite refreshing. All of a sudden, after no one wanted to speak to me, now I'm interviewing with lots of brokerages and I'm the best thing since sliced bread. I now realize it was because I had a pulse and no one else was walking in the door in 2009. But that really was my entry into residential real estate. I was very fortunate to fall into a good geographical area that allowed me to move as the market came back from the 08-09 crisis. And the rest is history. It is probably at the time it was single-handedly the worst possible thing that had ever happened in my life. Looking back now upon reflection, there was definitely a reason for it. And it turns out it was single-handedly the best thing that ever happened to my wife. I have to give testament to my wife, Teresa, because she was the one who forced me to do it. So she deserves the most accolade. Wow, that's really an incredible background story, Nicholas. A lot of people get into real estate, myself included, coming off a, a former career. I was in financial services. You were obviously in luxury marketing. I think at the time that you got into real estate, it was a tough landscape to navigate. And even though you had no real estate experience, I could imagine that those firms in Atlantis saw your business acumen and were like, these are the type of people that we need to sort of navigate this market going forward. So I'm sure that that's what you relied upon. Tell us about your first couple of deals. How did you get going in real estate? Well, yeah, good. So I started with Keller Williams very early on in my career, and there was a 92-year-old trainer there by the name of Barbara Kyle. And there was this program called 443. You had to get four listings, four buyers, and three closings in a 90-day period. And of course, I took it as a challenge. And let's be very clear, I was desperate not to be on Social Security. In fact, my first couple of deals, Kevin, were not big enough for me to be able to take the check. So I had the brokerage hold the check so I could keep <laughs> with the $330 checks right. until I'd made enough money to move out of that. But Barbara Kyle, single-handedly for me, she took the focus of what I knew and all of my transferable skills from the prior career that I'd had and helped me apply it towards residential real estate. And honestly, it was an aha moment for me. It was a light bulb that went off. I spent my life being about relationships, serving people, understanding people, their wants, needs, and desires. So there was a tremendous sort of opportunity for me to move in that direction, even though I didn't have any sales experience, which now upon reflection, I'm kind of glad I didn't because that was the best incubator period of time that I could have ever gone into. It was difficult. I was a counselor. I was dealing with short sales and foreclosures in a market no one had ever seen before. So even though I was new, I was alongside 30-year veterans who were like, I've never seen this. We don't know what to do. So I was just accelerating that learning curve as fast as I could in order to help people. And going back to Barbara, she just was an absolute pistol. And unfortunately, she's passed now. I used to call her the young lady. She was certainly not the young lady, but she was a spitfire like a young lady. And she just basically laid down the law and said, you need to do this. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this. And I was a sponge and I needed that in my world. And I did it and it worked. And then it worked a little bit more. And then all of a sudden it got a great amount of velocity and business started to grow. So just being honest and genuine and listening to people and helping them through that period of distress 
and obviously being able to formulate relationships fairly quickly was a huge, huge kickstart to my business. They say it's the people that you meet along your journey that really sort of help you shape who you ultimately become, whether that's personally or professionally. So it sounds like Barbara was a really important person in your professional career. Very, very, without doubt. Wow, that's really, uh, you know, and I really, I just want to say right now, I really appreciate your honesty. You're being very honest and genuine with us. And I think our listeners will appreciate that. In our industry, as you know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and brokers put themselves out there like they're curing cancer and they can do no wrong and they walk on water. But we all know how difficult it is behind the scenes and how, you know, humble you have to be and how hard you have to work to really persevere in this. And it's clear to me, <laughs> your back was up against the wall and you just fought your way through it. Yeah, but without doubt, looking at it from a historical perspective, having my back against the wall, being in such a position of distress probably accelerated my career very, very heavily because it was fight or flight, right? Was right. I going to go back to the UK? Was I going to move back to Asia? There really wasn't any option. And it's a very humbling place to be when someone is carrying your mortgage, your wife is working multiple jobs. It's not somewhere you want to be, but the best thing is it's not somewhere you ever want to go back to. So I'm very proud of that moment in time, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, and clearly you have every right to be. And I think that the people that really persevere when they're under that kind of overall duress is people that just find focus in that, right? They find focus, put their eye on a prize, and they just set their mind to getting through it. And not only am I going to climb over a wall, they end up going right through a wall, and then they build such great strength that no one can ever take that away from you. And in any market now, you're not going to get paralyzed. You're not, you know what I'm saying? You're just going to keep marching forward. And yeah, right through, through that very experience. True. Great learning experience, yeah. for sure. Wow. Thanks for sharing. So let's get into the Atlanta market. I'm very familiar with Atlanta. I have a lot of good friends that live there. I've spent time there. My wife lived in Atlanta for a period of time, so I'm very familiar with it. And I personally, on the surface, feel like Atlanta sort of turned into Los Angeles a little bit. If you think about how long it takes to drive across that town now, the traffic situation, there's a whole entertainment component down there. It's a very dynamic city. There's a lot of culture there. There's always a lot going on. And then in the market, the market sort of was similar to Miami. It seems to either be crashing out or skyrocketing. So maybe you could take our listeners through the overall Atlanta real estate market. I think, and much like I'm sure many of the other markets within the network, Atlanta has seen a tremendous amount of change in the last 12 to 24 months. We were already tipping the scales as far as becoming way more cosmopolitan, attracting many more Fortune 1, Fortune 500s. Our populace continues to grow positively year over year, even though we still rank as one of the largest relocation cities inbound and bound in the entire United States. I've been here now 14 years, and it feels very different to 14 years ago, and in very good ways. I think we have better entertainment, we have better real estate, we have better restaurants. We have a much more diverse population here. 
I love that. We have 600,000 expats that live inside the 22 counties. So it's really refreshing to meet, you know, my son goes to the Atlanta International School. That school has 68 languages. So Atlanta for me has changed very dynamically on many fronts. The wealth aspect has changed fundamentally. So price points of homes have changed very aggressively. What was the norm and is the norm have changed monstrously. So it it is seen an evolution, but I really believe that it's still very early on in its growth trajectory. Obviously, everyone says, well, Atlanta was put on the map because of the Olympics and Atlanta's on the map because of the Hartsfield-Jackson Airport, which is very true. One of the best amenities we have is that airport and it makes life extraordinarily easy, which is part of the reason that we obviously attract some of the bigger companies. But we've turned the corner, we've moved from a red to a blue state, and we are now attracting the likes of Google and Microsoft and just larger corporations that we never had before. And they're opening multiple offices. They're opening data centers. So it seems like there's a bigger light and the pandemic has shone that on. I mean, there was obviously a lot of sub-markets like Austin and so on and so forth that really benefited. I feel like we've really benefited and people feel that there's significant value in real estate here. And to be fair, compared to a lot of the other markets within the network and around the country, we're seen as a value proposition. So I believe that, you know, there's a lot of naysayers at the moment saying, well, we've got ahead of our skis. We're going to be moving back from a price point perspective. I'm not seeing that. I think we're early and I think we're going to keep moving north. There might be a little bit of a contraction here with interest rates and inflation and so on and so forth. But I think this has all been very positive for Atlanta as a whole. So real estate has just gotten more expensive in Atlanta and you feel it's going to continue to get more expensive. I do. Yeah. I mean, I think you'd ask me to sort of mention a couple of things with regard to sort of what do we do as an overall volume for a market? Now, we're not, we're definitely not even going to touch the surface of some of our California markets and so on and so forth or New York, but the rolling 12 months, we're retailing around 109,000 homes at about $45 billion. Highest sale in that market is 18.1 million. So we have a lot of transactions that land between that 5 million and 18.1, but that's really the upper end of the market. If you're playing in that, I mean, the highest sale on record is just a little over 20 million for the Atlanta market. So what's the average sale price point in Atlanta? Depends. We are made up of 22 counties, so it really depends on where you're really focusing. But I mean, if we're looking inside the perimeter, average price is about 1.49 million. Mm-hmm. Okay. Somewhere in the vicinity of that. And just tremendous velocity, right? Which was really sort of grew exponentially through COVID. Yeah, I mean, much like a lot of the markets, it was truly insane, and we were very blessed to be able to be considered essential by the local government. So we did get to work through all of that, but it was very unexpected. I mean, we went through that initial period of lockdown and we thought the world was ending and business was going to collapse and the absolute opposite happened. What was 2 million is now 3.5 million. What was 3.5 million is now 5 million. So dynamic shift from a price perspective based on that demand. And it hasn't slowed. I mean, even with the rates moving, we're running at such low inventory. I mean, in, in some of our better markets, we're still under two months of inventory. And as we all know, six months of inventory is a balanced market. So we're super, super low. And again, listen, locally, the sellers that have 3% interest rates are are staying where they are. They're hunkering down. They're not going to jump into taking a 6.25 rate. But we are still moving and relocating people out very aggressively. So that is going to keep our market fairly robust. 
So we'll have a little bit of lockup locally, but we're still going to transact, I think, a very healthy amount. I mean, albeit it'll be down on 2021 and 2020, but I still feel confident that our market is going to move very healthily throughout 2023. Right. So when you talk about price points sort of escalating, there's obviously a supply and demand dynamic, but through COVID, it's also like a market like in Atlanta, like in Austin, like in Nashville, where you've got people from California, people from New York and the rest of the Northeast, where they land in these markets and they're like, wow, that's inexpensive. Two million for that. I'll pay two five for that. Right. Like, are those the folks that really drove the prices north? I'd love to say that that it was just who it was. I think you have a lot of wealth in Atlanta that people underestimate. And we had a significant move in our market, actually, to some of our sub-markets that are outside the perimeter, Alpharetta and Roswell and so on and so forth, where price points there have become almost as expensive as Buckhead, which has just never happened. They've become really cachet. People didn't want to be in the hubbub anymore. They wanted to step away from areas of crime. They didn't have to work from home. So, yes, we had a lot of people. I mean, I had so many customers coming from parts of the country that I'd never done business with before. But at the same time, we had so many people that just made this psychological decision to say, I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to pay for it. It better have a pool and I'll fight to the ends of the earth to win it. So it was super, super interesting. I can't say that I didn't watch a couple of people. I mean, I cringed at some of the price points that they were throwing out and there'll be some errors in there, but they did it. They charged with the bulls and they wanted to do it and they got what they want and they're happy with it. So... It's super, super interesting, both locally and coming from outside of the city. In your market, given the public transportation sort of issues and where people are in their cars, and a lot of people are in their cars, just like in Los Angeles, because they want to be in their cars. But through COVID, if you're able to work remotely, and number one, you can live further outside of, say, the core of Atlanta, right? So I could see that drives prices. So if you're going to go to Alpharetta or some of these other places sort of outside that core, you're going to run those prices up quickly, right? You'll still get more for your money comparatively, but I could see how the prices really escalated in those exterior markets. I mean, Kevin, honestly, you would akin it to some of our secondary markets, some of our lakes and mountains, and they were up almost 100%. I would say Alpharetta was probably, in some instances, upwards of 100% uptick in value. I mean, head-scratching. People people that had moved away from Atlanta that have moved back, they're like, I don't understand. I could afford to live in Alpharetta. I can't afford to live there anymore. I'm like, absolutely, the demand. Now, I will say, you have to couple that with a few things that have happened by those municipalities. Alpharetta and Roswell are spending a lot on their infrastructure. They're spending a lot on creating these downtown areas. And you go there on a Saturday night, and it's like college for adults. I mean, the streets are loaded. People... They've got open container laws, and it's just a lot of fun. So now you don't have to be in Buckhead to have that. And the other thing that happened, Kevin, is a lot of the best restaurateurs noticed this trend. And so they've moved their sister restaurants or they've moved their brand or a new restaurant opening out there. So honestly, you can go get as good of a food out there as you ever could coming into town. And they've got the market and the people willing to spend the money there. So, as I said, it has become almost cachet to be at those locations, whereas before, you're probably familiar with this, we have a fun terminology, 285 is the ring road here, and we have inside the perimeter, outside the perimeter, the joke was always, well, I don't go OTP unless you've got really expensive wine, I'm not coming to you, you can come to us. And that's not the case anymore. It really, really has blown up and matured very, very quickly over the last 12 to 24 months. If you build it, they will come. Yeah, for sure. 
So all markets cycle. So what are the current market trends right now in Atlanta? It's a noticeable contraction. And I think it's obviously a lot of it is shock psychologically tied to where those rates are. The good news is we do have a very healthy amount of cash transactions that occur. So obviously those individual purchases are less impacted by interest rates and so not bothered. However, those individuals tend to be the wealthier and they're looking and observing, seeing if there's going to be a significant market correction of some sort or pullback that will obviously dissipate prices. So it's a lot of people sort of in an observation period of time at this moment. Again, we're still moving. You will find that there are still all of the majority of the houses. If it comes, it's priced right, it's conditioned correctly. There might not be 10 offers on it, but you're gonna have two and three. It's gonna go at list or above. We have managed to, and I'm really happy about this, we've pulled the exuberance out of the market, the stupidity out of the market, the one where I'm scratching my head going, this doesn't make any sense. Why would we be doing this? But the client is happy to do that. So that's sort of off the table. I think sellers who were putting on silly price points on their homes, 100, 200, 300 over what they should have been listed at, they are getting an education. They are being told very quickly by the market, we don't agree with your pricing. So the majority of the price reductions that we are seeing in our marketplace are from people who are ahead of their skis. Those that are accurate and are listening to their agent and understanding, we're still going in the first weekend. So yes, there's a lot of headwinds in front of us. I think headwinds continue to be inventory shortage, interest rates, inflation. But I still put up listings on a Thursday, start showings on a Friday and have that thing under contract by Sunday evening. So it is not going to dynamically change, unfortunately, until we see rising tides with regard to inventory. Yeah, I mean, the terminology that we use with our clients is the markets have normalized, right? And to your point, it's welcome. Every market has its challenges for buyers, for sellers. But the market that we were in at the height of COVID was artificial to a large extent. So now the markets have normalized. And you can be fine being normal. It doesn't have to be red hot. It doesn't have to be ice cold. It can be normal, right? And I think that's what's going on in many areas of the country. I would completely agree. And I agree with you. It is refreshing and needed because I think we could have pushed ourselves into bubble territory and brought the whole house of cards down. So I welcome the change at this moment in time. Agreed. Agreed. So can you take our listeners through your business, how you set it up, how you operate it, all the dynamics associated with your particular business? Yeah. So when I first got into the business, I started obviously as an individual agent. I fell in quickly into new construction That segment of my business grew very healthily over a seven to 10 year period of time. Alongside that growth, some of the builders that I work with grew simultaneously. So they started moving into development. So really one of the big reasons other than obviously Mr. Refkin and the uh, Compass brand as a whole, one of the large reasons that I moved my business from a smaller boutique brokerage in Atlanta over to Compass was because they were very pro team. And I was looking at my business and here I am faced with multiple subdivisions that I'm looking to take on as an individual agent. And I'm saying to myself, well, that's not going to be possible. You're going to bring the house of cards down. I don't want to lose this segment of my business. And yeah, I don't want to give this segment of the business up either. So that was very much the catalyst to the growth of my business. We grew very quickly from myself and my operations manager, Carolyn, into 13 agents. That was then two admin and the rest were all producing agents. In the middle of COVID, Kevin, I was, I think, much like a lot of us, there was periods of confusion, periods of discontent. So I actually took a look at the business model 
and I stripped it down. And so the original team was Brown Daniel Group. They are firmly and still in existence, but I restructured it and I did a reorganization. I hired a sales director and I put him in overall charge of all of the agents. And underneath uh, Brown Daniel, that then segued into our resale division. So those agents specifically focus on buyers and sellers. We had a new development division. So that's our communities division. And then we had our new construction. So I have an individual that we do a lot of tear down new construction in this city. So that individual is, he works with a lot of our investors, but is always seeking lots for tear down that we obviously promote and sell to our builders and partner with them on the new construction. So we segued into that. And at the same time, I was looking at where my business had grown and I, I now have these wonderful agents that are working alongside of me, but there was a huge disparity in price point, right? So they're early on in their career and we're taking 200,000, 500,000 townhouses in Alpharetta or Duluth or Johns Creek, and I'm listing $5 million properties in town. And I was starting to get a little concerned with dilution of that luxury brand with Brown Daniel Group. So I separated and started a specific luxury division underneath as well. It sort of owns and operates on its own. It has its own website, it has its own marketing, it has its own branding, and it's just specifically luxury. So that's in essence how we structure ourselves and it has worked very, very well. People who were struggling just as a resale agent became extraordinarily strong under their respective divisions. And I think the clients were very receptive to the fact that we had separated out the luxury so it worked really, really well, but it was born of just complete and utter dissatisfaction of where I felt business was heading. And I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't had the moment to reflect sitting in the office in my basement <laughs> during COVID. So very refreshing, and it's going extraordinarily well at this point. Well, wow, that's very interesting because when you're an individual agent, the best agents, they specialize, right? So whether it's a price point, a geography, a type of property, but then when you have a team, you can have these silos, right, of specialization across your team, across literally every specialization you want to get into. And then you can build a brand around that and then message to the clients you're looking to attract sort of into that silo. So it's interesting that you've seen that. And you're not the first person that I've heard that runs a large team that has created these divisions. So it's really interesting to me because they're businesses within your business. They are. And um, the best thing about it is what it has brought out in the characters that were given the autonomy to run those divisions. Really refreshing. A lot of acceleration, a lot of growth, and a lot of success. So that's been really refreshing to see. And everyone seems to be happy. You know, I, I was always an advocate for, because I was capable, and I now realize not every agent is, and that this is not a knock, it's just, I was always told you'll either be a buyer's agent or a listing agent. I said, well, I want to do it all. And you can do it all, but I don't know that everyone has the same capability to do everything. So it's been nice to be able to find places for people where they excel under that particular division, and they may not have excelled in the other particular division. So we've been able to move a few of the individuals around, and they've done extraordinarily well under it. And that, I think, is extraordinarily refreshing. It also broadens your own horizons, right? So if a client's coming to you typically for a $5 million sort of a buy or sell, but they have a friend or a colleague or whatever who's looking to buy a $200,000 rental property, they're not going to say to you, well, you don't really do that because you have all these divisions. And you say, oh, well, we'll just put you over here. And we have that specialization. So to me, it broadens your business reach, if you will. 
It does. Initially, there was this, <laughs> there was a, lot, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction from some of the clients. They're like, hold on a second, which bucket do I fall into? Am I, are you sending me the team? Because the team are managing really basically everything a million and below, and I'm handling everything a million and above. And they were like, I better not get a knock on my door and you don't show up, which was, was pretty funny. But those individuals are still sending over referrals. Those referrals go to the resale team. Those referrals go to the individual that handles our investor properties. So it's really refreshing to be able to keep that in-house. And initially, Kevin, as we went through this, there was obviously we had to figure out how we were pitching this because I'm getting phone calls and you don't ever want to say to someone, well, I don't want to take your $750,000 listing. Hey, Kevin, please let me introduce you to my business partner. He's younger, more dynamic, better looking than me. He's going to be taking lead. I'm a bit more of a back role. I'm playing quarterback. And people have been extraordinarily receptive to it. And I honestly can't say that we've seen a fall off in or loss in business. I think there was one incident where someone got bent out of shape because I wasn't going to be the lead agent. And I think that was, again, just part of the delivery initially. But honestly, now we don't have a problem with it. People are fine with it. But we also adjusted our marketing, right? So a lot of our marketing for Brown Daniel Group doesn't have me as front and center. I sort of remove myself into the background. So people know I'm there because they see the social media, they see what's happening and the sales and all of that good stuff. But the marketing that we send out is about the team. And so when that business comes in, it's delivered and executed because I trained those individuals and they know they're going to get the same standards of excellence they would from me, from that individual. And it really has worked out very well. I could see how the clients prefer this model because they want to deal with a specialist. That's the bottom line. Yeah, very true. Wow, that's really interesting that you had the vision to create that. And now it's all about just drilling down into those silos and building those individual businesses and the overall team will just grow exponentially. For sure. Absolutely. Wow. Good for you, Nicholas. That's a great job there. So let's go into the last segment here of this conversation. And this is an important one now because you know we're about 30 days or so away from the (laughs) Compass Retreat in Atlanta, which you are graciously hosting for us. And you and Carolyn and the rest of your team have done an amazing job. I just want to thank you again for all the planning. It's really going to be an incredible experience. But Myself personally, now I'm very interested in what's going on now from a lifestyle perspective and hot restaurants, hotels to visit, other cultural things happening there, because obviously I'm coming down there for five or six or seven days. And maybe you could take our listeners through, number one, for you, what's a perfect day in the life of Atlanta? And then maybe you can tell us what's going on and other scenes in that city. Sure. Well, I don't want to give away too much, but I am about to uh, drop a couple of hopefully very exciting things in your lap, which I'm going to need your approval on before they go out to the entire network. But we have a great website coming at you. And we've actually figured out, bizarrely, how to make an app. So we have our own private client network app for the 2022 retreat. What I put in there for everyone is a list of all of the best bars in Buckhead and Midtown, all of the best restaurants. So you're going to have it all. There's a click for Uber. There's a click to the each individual website. So you can look at menus and that sort of thing. So I think that'll be fun and exciting. But when you describe a day in Atlanta, I think I like to say that it's fun, food, and friends, right? You're always doing something along those lines, right? I think the nice thing about this city is you can have as much of it as you want or as little of it as you want. You want to be in the bars and the restaurants and the action. It's there. It's available. You want to be up till four o'clock in the morning. We can accommodate you. 
but it's also extraordinarily family friendly. And as I said earlier, as the city has become more cosmopolitan, we've added some excellent new restaurants that have just blown the food scene up and out of the water. But we also are very, very well known for some of our institutions. Institutional restaurants in and around our city have been here with 20, 25 years. They're staples. You never get a bad meal at any one of those. It's always good wine, good friends, good food. And I think that is a big part of life here because, you know, as much as we work, it's about taking and enjoying those moments on the weekends and getting out and enjoying. Like now I have a seven-year-old son, so I don't get to go to as many restaurant openings and bar openings as I once did, but he's now seven. He's very well-mannered and we get to go to these restaurants just at a slightly different time of the evening. But we have a wonderful fine dining. We have great Italian. We've got new American. We've got phenomenal Thai, Vietnamese. And it's interesting because you get sort of one dynamic over in the bucket area, then you get a completely different scene in the Midtown area. But I'm a big fan of a lot of our institutions like Aria, Fine Dining Restaurant. I mean, I've never had a bad meal there. Soto Soto down in Old Fourth Ward Grand Park is probably the best Italian in the city. A lot of people don't even know about it. It's very small. It's probably 15 tables. It's difficult to get into. The menu doesn't change regularly, but it's been there 25 years and the food is exceptional. They have a scallop dish there that you would die for. I literally dream about that dish. So that's how I like to say it. Fun, friends, food. We also have a great scene, you know, if you're not into restaurants and bars and you're, you're more family oriented, there's a tremendous amount of things to do for the kids that might not necessarily be school related. Of course, you know, we have a lot of great lakes very close by. We also have the mountains that you can get to very, very quickly. I actually have a second home down in a community south of the city called Serenby. That's more of a farm and horse community. We love it. It's a great escape for us. It's close enough to the city that I can, you know, a 50 minute drive. So if I've got to come back into the town, and show properties on the weekend. I can do that, but I am in the middle of nowhere. There are no streetlights. I can see the stars and my son can run around and play in that area in complete and utter safety. So there's a lot of diversity to be able to do things here. Wow. Really, really amazing. And I'm really looking forward to coming down for the private client network retreat. I think the dinner on Monday night, we've got like 67 people coming. So it's going to be well attended. And Thank you so much again for all your efforts, you and your team in coordinating that and very much looking forward to seeing you. And we have a couple of groups of listeners here. Obviously, we have the consumer, right, buyers and sellers. And we also have agents and younger agents always aspire to become a highly productive agent. And everyone wants to get into the luxury. And so for those agents that are listening that really aspire to sell luxury, what advice would you give them? Yeah, it's a good question. It was a grind to be able to start to figure out. This is a city, it's a smaller city. There are a lot of institutional agents, I'll call them, that have historically had that market share. But things as consumers have changed, as net worth has changed, as the nationalities have changed, I think people are much more open to having the conversation. But it's going to go back for me to the old adage, if you want it, you go get it. You have to concentrate on it. You can't expect it. It happens over a period of time. Unless you come from an uber wealthy family and you belong to all of the upper end country clubs in the city and you get business handed to you from family members or parents or whatever, when I moved to the city, I didn't know anyone at all. I mean, I literally didn't know anyone. And, and with the prior job that took me up and down the country, I really didn't get to know anyone. 
but I understood that price point was going to be extraordinarily important to my overall business. So it was a focus. And every single year, I would just simply focus on moving the price point up and making sure that I honestly, perception is nine tenths. A lot of people will tell you that's not true. But you bet when you pull up to that house, that client at that price point is looking at what do you wear? What do you drive? How do you speak? What is your presentation like? So if you want to perform in a luxury market, you better look the part first and foremost. You better be able to carry that stick, but you can't sell luxury real estate hanging around buyers that are going to be buying two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollar houses. So where are you hanging out? Where are you going to dinner? Who are you socializing? What are the charitable events? So you have to be very strategic in the moves. It doesn't mean you have to be a social climber. It doesn't mean you have to be looking to climb on the back of someone else, but you have to be very cognizant that is an extraordinarily difficult market to get into but it is not unachievable. You just have to put the work ethic in like anything else in your business and focus singularly on that marketplace. And eventually you will get your first million and then there will be two and then there will be five. And it will happen for you because then you have the recognition of being able to sell in that price point. Yeah, you're your own brand. So whatever brand you put out there, that's the type of clientele you're going to attract. That's really good advice. And I have to tell you, you're the definition of a self-made man So congrats to you. You took it from the ground floor to the penthouse and uh, through a lot of hard work and a lot of working very strategically and in, in a very intelligent manner as well. So congrats to you, Nicholas. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all today. Excellent. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing you in Atlanta. So thanks again. Thank you. A sincere thank you to Nicholas Brown for being our featured guest on our first episode of the second season of Luxury on Location. That was an amazing conversation, which we sincerely hope our listeners enjoyed. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. We understand there are a multitude of podcasts out there, so we appreciate that you chose Luxury on Location for your listening pleasure. We hope to see you back for our next episode when Kevin Snedden will be speaking with another one of our private client network partners and discussing their luxury market. In the meantime, please check out the Private Client Network at Compass, your nationwide resource for luxury real estate. We operate in virtually every luxury real estate market in the country. You can find us at theprivateclientnetwork.com or on Instagram at Private Client Network. Until next time.